Live Life in Motion is brought to you by CBDMD. I am very pumped to have CBDMD as a partner. They are the most legitimate CBD company out there. All their products are THC free. They're all third party tested. Really, they're trusted by a lot of the best athletes in the world. I've used CBD for a long time and their products at CBDMD are simply the best. I love their gummies. Really, there's a lot of uses for CBD. I like to use it for sleep and really any type of recovery. Um, It really can help inflammation. So go to their site, cbdmd.com, look up some products and use promo code LIVE25 at checkout and you will save 25% off your order. So it's a pretty darn good deal. Go to cbdmd.com, use promo code LIVE25 at checkout and start living healthier. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing you a conversation I had with Dr. Stephen Lockley. Dr. Lockley is a neuroscientist and he runs the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Harvard. Dr. Lockley is one of the leading experts when it comes to sleep. And if you didn't know already, sleep could be the most important thing you need to hone in on to improve your performance professionally and, of course, personally, and to improve your energy levels, or maybe it's your focus. Um, Whatever it might be, sleep could be a factor in helping that out. And that's what we talk about, how your body has an internal clock, how to reset the internal clock, how to improve jet lag, how to improve your energy levels, how long you should sleep, keys to getting better sleep, falling asleep, staying asleep. So it's a lot of information, but it's awesome information. And like I said, it could be the most important thing you need to focus on if you are feeling you can you can make improvements, which I think we all can. Um, so enjoy the conversation. Dr. Sleep Stephen Lockley was a pleasure to talk with, and I think you'll get a lot of good information out of it. So without further ado, here is the conversation. Welcome to Live Life in Motion a podcast designed to educate and motivate each of you to reach higher and go further than you ever have before, building the tools you need to empower your mind and body to thrive in the live life in motion mindset. Dr. Lockley, thank you uh, so much for joining me today. Hi, Sam. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Um, I'm just pumped to talk to you and really get the importance of the internal clock and the circadian rhythm to people to understand, to optimize their performance. And let's just kind of get right into it with what is circadian rhythm? So our circadian rhythms are rhythms which have a period or last about 24 hours. And so the word circadian um, is is based on circa da so about a day, and so you'll already be aware of many rhythms in your physiology. Have um, uh, you know, the cycle every twenty four hours, and so your sleep pattern is one example. You sleep about once a day, and so your sleep has a twenty four hour rhythm. Your performance through the day 
changes um, and would be high in the at night. And so that's another example of a circadian rhythm. Your mood changes over 24 hours. And so these are things which we often notice to have a, a circadian rhythm. But of course, there are many other things which you don't realize that also are driven by the circadian clock. And really, everything to some extent is governed by the clock because all of our internal biology has to be timed appropriately to work properly and also has to link with the outside world. Uh, and I'll talk in a little bit about how, how that happens. But if we look at things like your metabolism, that has a circadian rhythm, a 24-hour rhythm. Your immune function, uh, many hormones, your temperature, uh, really anything that um, uh, really anything that we measure to some extent has this daily pattern. And so the circadian system is this, uh, is this collection of rhythms in, in all of our biology, and it's governed by a clock in the brain. And so when we talk about the circadian pacemaker or the circadian clock, we're talking about a group of about 50,000 cells in the brain, which are all individual clocks. Each cell is, is like an individual clock. And these cells are able to keep time themselves. They don't need any external influence. They're just, uh, you know, what are called um, uh, spontaneous or independent oscillators. They are clocks in their own right. And so these cells generate 24-hour rhythms, which then get sent out to the rest of the brain to control sleep, performance, hormones, metabolism, all the things I mentioned earlier. And so we have this clock in the brain that governs our 24-hour rhythms and control the timing of our physiology and behavior. Is it, what is, how is it 24? Do some people, you know, we're all individuals. Do some people have 25 hour or 23 hour? Does it, is there a range? There is a range. It does vary. So the range is from around 23 and a half hours up to about 25 hours maximum. The average is around 24.2 hours. So just a little bit longer than 24 hours. So if I was to bring you into a cave um, or into a laboratory where I control the light, I could measure your internal clock, your what's called the internal period of your circadian pacemaker. And on average, that's a little bit longer than 24. And so what, what does that do to us? Why does that matter? Well, the internal period of your clock determines how you line up in the world. And so people who have a quicker clock, let's say 23.5 or close to 24, tend to be more morning type. They, they are a lark. They like to get up early in the morning and, and do their best work in the morning. But people with a longer circadian period, say 24 and a half or, or up towards 25, they're more evening type and they do their work better later in the day. And so your internal clock determines how to line up with the world and the most important aspect of the world in terms of, of the clock is the light-dark cycle. And so we reset our clocks every day uh, with exposure to light and dark. So there is this individual range. We all are slightly different. And so that's why some of us are morning type, some of us are evening type. It's determined by our internal clock. Is that something that's genetic that you're born with or developed over time? Your clock uh, time is genetic, and so we know there's a set of clock genes that determine the timing of your internal clock. But 
we have other things which affect our behavior. And so while your genetic clock won't change over a lifetime, your behavior might change for other reasons. And so, for example, if we think about sleep, uh, there's another process that affects sleep uh, called the homeostatic regulation of sleep, which is essentially uh, regulating how long you can stay awake continuously or how long you can sleep continuously. And that changes with age. And that will also change then the timing of things like sleep. So you will you know yourself, uh, your listeners will know that as you get older, you tend to become more evening, uh, more morning type. You tend to wake up uh, and go to bed earlier than you used to. That doesn't mean that your clock uh, is changing genetically. It just means that the regulation of sleep is changing over a lifetime, uh, which is why we sleep earlier. So no, the clock ticket is... Um, you inherit that, uh, but then sometimes there are other factors which affect the timing of behavior. It isn't just about that genetic clock. Right. Okay. So what you talk about light, is light the main form to reset the clock? Yes, it is. So light and dark, the light-dark cycle, the 24-hour rhythm of light and dark is the most powerful time cue for resetting our rhythms. And that's why we've evolved a circadian clock, because we're in a very strong 24-hour environment. And so um, we, we detect that light through the eyes and only through the eyes in mammals. Um, and so that light has to go in through the eyes, and then it essentially tells the brain what time of day it is, whether it's day or night, and then the clock resets itself every day to that light-dark cycle. Now. You don't have to do anything special to make that happen. You don't have to run outside at 7 a.m. every morning to get your light pulse to reset you. But if you live in a 24-hour light-dark cycle, the system will do it for you. Your eyes will see light in the day, see dark at night, and then the clock will reset itself on a daily basis. Uh, but we reset ourselves by a different amount based on our internal clock, which is why some people become synchronized a little earlier, the morning types, and some people become synchronized a little later, they're the evening types, even though they're exposed to the same light-dark cycle. So light is absolutely key. It's the most important time cue. But if you live in a 24-hour light-dark world, then the system will reset itself automatically. How, you know, I feel like in today's world, we're staring into light almost all the time. What how can that disrupt or affect your ability to go to sleep or screw with your cycle? How can, how can we better manage that? Yeah, it, it is a problem. So the uh, ease with which we now can access uh, man-made light, uh, we don't rely on the sun for our light anymore, uh, does disrupt our clocks. And so you can think of any light after dusk as being unnatural. Because if you lived in a world without electric lighting, without man-made lighting, um, you wouldn't really see much light after dusk. Starlight and moonlight would be very low level. And so the brain would, would know day and night based on sunlight. What we do now is confuse the clock because we see light after dusk. And what that does actually is shift our clock to a later time. And so we, we go to bed later than we will have done in the past. We probably don't sleep as long as we would have done in the past because this evening light is 
pushing our clocks to a later time. Now, the other thing that light does is stimulate the brain and keep us alert. And so in addition to shifting the timing of the clock, light can be thought of just as a stimulant. And so if you see bright light close to bedtime, you won't be able to fall asleep as quickly and you won't have as much deep sleep because the brain is more alert and it hasn't calmed down properly. And so we do worry about evening light exposure because it shifts the clock later, which makes it harder to fall asleep, and also alerts the brain, which makes it harder to fall asleep. And one thing we, we try and educate people on is how to try and avoid that risk. Obviously, you're not going to live your life uh, by sunlight. You're not going to stop seeing light after dusk. But what can you do to minimize the negative impact of light in the evening? And so what we ask people to do is to avoid light as much as possible. So avoid bright light, certainly. And particularly avoid light from electric devices. Because the light that comes out of your phone and your laptop and your tablet is enriched in the blue part of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And blue light is the most alerting light compared to other uh, wavelengths in the, in the visible spectrum. And so that phone light, which is right by your eyes, and is therefore high intensity, is really having a negative effect compared to, say, a TV that might be 10 feet away. And so electronic devices are a real issue in the evening, and we should really stop using them for as long as possible before sleep, ideally two to three hours before we go to bed. Um, but if you have to use them, then you know, use them uh, with the night setting, uh, which will often dim the screen or make the screen look a red-orange color, which is taking away some of those blue wavelengths. And so you should really avoid as much light as possible between dusk and bedtime. And uh, that means dialing down the intensity of the light, uh, dialing down the blue content of the light, and thinking carefully about your light exposure to minimize those negative effects. Is there a certain amount of time you would recommend someone turning down their light exposure in the evening for the brain to recognize, you know, it's time to go to sleep or time to wind down? Yeah, so, so any time would be better than nothing. So if you can only do 30 minutes before bed, I would still recommend doing that because that's going to help a little bit. But we, we think about the, the hormone melatonin if we think about light effects at night. And so this hormone is the biochemical signal of night. It tells the brain that it's nighttime. Now, it's not a sleep hormone like some people think because rats produce melatonin at night and they run around at night. Um, what melatonin does is tell the brain that it's nighttime. And that melatonin rise, that onset of melatonin, as it's sometimes called, happens about two to three hours before we go to sleep, usually, okay. on average. It varies between people. So if you want to make sure that the brain knows it's night at the right time, then we should be avoiding light about two to three hours before bedtime. Now, this sounds, you know, okay, well, that, you know, that's difficult. How am I going to do that? But it, is, it isn't that difficult if you, you know, think about your evening. Um, what you need to do, for example, is, is dim down the lights you sit in in the evening, which is not a big deal. Maybe you just have a single table lamp on or a single bedside lamp. Mm -hmm. And then can you buy a light bulb which is dim, a low wattage light bulb? You can also buy light bulbs that are designed to take out those blue alerting wavelengths. And so a sleep-promoting light bulb. Many companies now will produce light bulbs which look a red-orange color, Mm -hmm. and will help minimize that impact of light. 
Some people wear sunglasses. When I give people advice about jet lag and travel and get them to avoid light, sunglasses would help. Some people use glasses which block the blue wavelengths, which again are helpful to some extent, but don't completely stop the effects. You should also then stop using your electronic devices for as long as you can before sleep. Sit far away from the TV, don't have a TV in the bedroom, etc., etc. So it's not that hard to minimize or reduce some of these effects of light, but you have to think about it and, and plan ahead a little bit and then make sure you're exposed to the right light at the right time, which means bright light in the day, but then in the evening as dim and, and blue depleted as possible for as long as possible before bed. And like you said, it's really not that hard if you take a few small steps, maybe eliminate a few lights in your room or dim them down with you know, flipping to the morning, is there any science or research done about when you do wake up, maybe getting exposure to light right away for more energy or being more awake? Absolutely. So as I said earlier, light is a stimulant. And so we've talked about trying to reduce those stimulant effects in the evening, but you want to increase those stimulant effects in the daytime. And the best way to do that is to be exposed to as much bright light as possible. And if you're using electric light, a blue enriched or a bluer looking white light. Now, the first thing to think about is, can I just use sunlight? And, and many people could. So if you can just access daylight as much as possible, daylight's got you know, all, the, all the light intensity and, and all the blue light you could possibly need in it and is, is available there for free. And so getting exposed to as much daylight as you can in the day is good. That doesn't necessarily even have to be outdoors, although, of course, getting outdoors is good for other reasons too. But if you can expose yourself to daylight as much as you can, even on a cloudy day, there's still plenty of light uh, to signal to the clock. Uh, and so get as much of that daylight exposure as you can. Now, if you're in a place where you're not exposed to daylight, if you're in an office without windows or you're far away from the window, then you can supplement the, the light with, with electric light, with a, with a light bulb. And now you need to look for a blue-enriched light bulb, and, and these are sometimes sold as alerting lights. And these ones are the cooler-looking lights. People have, have uh, you know, seen these before. They're the ones that look sort of cooler or bluer, even though it's white light. They have what's called a higher correlated color temperature or CCT value, and you'll see that on, on the light bulb box. And so you would be looking for something with a, a CCT value of about 5,000 kelvins or higher. It's, it's a measure of, of temperature. And so a blue-enriched, blue-looking, cool light in the daytime, uh, as much as you can, and then, again, the dim, red-enriched in the evening. So if you think about you know, how you want to set your home up, for example, again, it can be quite simple. You could put blue-enriched, high-color temperature lights in the ceiling for the daytime use, and then blue depleted dim lamps in your table and bedside lamp or under, under kitchen uh, cabinet lighting or the vanity light in the bathroom. Most people will have two circuits in their homes. And so you can put one light bulb for the daytime and one light bulb for the nighttime. And just by thinking about, well, it's day, I'll turn on the ceiling, ceiling lights. It's evening, I'll use the table lamp. You can create that better day-night cycle for the circadian system to synchronize to and to help the brain calm down before sleep. 
That's that's amazing. And really, like you said, simple to do. Just put one set of lights and, you know, maybe the overhead lights, then one set of lights and the lamps. And you switch to the lamps in the evening. That's right. And, and if you want to be high tech, there are systems to do that. So you can buy light bulbs that automatically will do that for you. Um, you there are automated systems or, or systems where you can program the lights to change color or, or intensity. And so for people who want to automate that, that technology is out there. That's great as well. And, and you can do that. But you don't need to do that. You don't have to necessarily uh, spend that money or make it that complicated just by having the right light at the right time you can create this better light-dark cycle. Is there, you know, a lot of people have issues not sleeping through the night. Does that have anything to say about their internal clock? Not necessarily. So so if they're sleeping at night already, their clock is, is doing the right thing in terms of having them sleep at night. There are some sleep disorders which are due to sleeping at the wrong time, however. Um, and so if you think of shift work as, as an extreme example, if you try and sleep in the daytime, then it's hard to sleep in the day. And that's because you're sleeping at the wrong time, according to your circadian clock, because we've evolved to sleep at night and be awake in the day. But it doesn't have to be that extreme. So if you, uh, for example, went to bed too early, uh, you would find it hard to fall asleep because, again, your clock is not yet promoting sleep in the brain. So there are some specific disorders of people not being able to fall asleep uh, early enough or not being able to stay asleep long enough, which can be due to, to when you're sleeping in your circadian cycle. But, but more often than not, it's for another reason. So if we look at uh, something like insomnia, which is uh, one, of, one of the sleep disorders, we think that around 10 to 20% of people with insomnia have a circadian problem. But most of those people would have insomnia for another reason. And so uh, it's not always clear just based on the sleep uh, report or, or sleep timing what it is. You would you know, need further follow-up with a sleep physician to try and work out the underlying basis. Um, but certainly the circadian system can affect how well you sleep uh, based on the timing of sleep. But sometimes it's not always clear to, to know that that's the cause. What are, what are some other common sleep disorders? So... There are about 90 sleep disorders. Um, so there's a whole range of different sleep disorders. Ones that we worry about, uh, for example, in, in occupational settings, when we do work with um, we do health programs in workplaces, uh, we're concerned with obstructive sleep apnea. And that's a disorder that probably many people have heard of where you essentially stop breathing when you sleep. And so if you've slept next to someone with sleep apnea, you'll often hear them stop breathing for sometimes quite a while, and then you'll hear a big gasp of breath. You'll hear this big intake of breath, um, which is them restarting to breathe again. And so obstructive sleep apnea it, you know, is quite common. It's, it's common in, in overweight, middle-aged people, both men and women, um, and it is uh, uh, more prevalent in people who are overweight to have a, a big neck size. But it isn't just in people who are overweight. There are other reasons why someone might have sleep apnea. For example, if you've got uh, a, a big tongue or large tonsils or your jaw is set back slightly or your airway um, is, is, a, is narrower or shorter. And so it isn't just a, a disorder of people who are overweight. It's also sometimes due to anatomical reasons in the, in the airway. And so if you hear your partner 
stopping breathing, then they they need to get followed up and check whether they have it often enough and severe enough to need treatment. It's not just snoring, though. And so some people think, well, if people snore badly, uh, they have sleep apnea. That's not really the case. It's really that apnea, which which is the the act of stopping breathing. And so that's a common uh, concern, particularly in in older and um, more overweight groups for for workplaces. Um, We think we worry about shift work disorder because many millions of people do shift work. And, of course, when you try to sleep in the day and stay awake all night, um, that goes against what the clock is trying to do. And so that uh, often causes problems with sleep and long-term with with health. But then there are many, many other uh, disorders, uh, things like restless leg syndrome where people... Mm -hmm might kick at night is uh, is reasonably common but then lots of other things like uh, sleepwalking or, or REM behavior disorders lots of different categories but if you're not sleeping well and it's not obvious why um, then you should certainly go to your uh, your general practitioner your PCP and and get evaluated because sleep is really important for long-term health and so if you're struggling with sleep for whatever reason uh, you should get it checked out and that you know Sleep is so important. And one thing that I notice the most when I don't get good sleep is really my mood and mental health. Is that how, how correlated or connected is your mood or your, and your mental health depression? I know seasonal depression is big right now with your internal clock and your or circadian rhythm. Yeah, so that you can think about the, the links with mental health in two ways. There's, there's certainly an association with the clock, with the circadian system, and you mentioned seasonal affective disorder, uh, but also our daily mood cycles. Your, your daily mood patterns are, are often uh, controlled by the circadian system. But then you can think separately of the interaction between sleep and depression. And, and really, that's the two-way street. So we know that people who uh, don't sleep well have a higher risk of, of mental health problems and depression. But we also know that people who have depression have problems sleeping. And so it, it really works both ways and they uh, are sort of connected really very intimately because often sleep is one of the things that people notice going wrong if they have uh, mental health problems. Um, but then sleep problems could potentially cause mental health problems as well. And so it really goes both ways. The key uh, sort of um, takeaway from that is that um, bad sleep, not getting enough sleep, uh, is going to increase your risk of, of mental health problems. We did, for example, some surveys of uh, police officers and firefighters, about 12,000 uh, of them in, the, in North America, and we screened them for the risk of a sleep disorder. We looked at uh, sleep apnea, we looked at shift work disorder, restless leg syndrome, insomnia, And then we associated the risk of having one or more of those sleep disorders with other health issues. And the thing that came out the top was depression and anxiety. And in those people who were at risk of one or more sleep disorder, there was more than three times the risk of having depression or anxiety compared to those who didn't have a risk of a sleep disorder. And that was higher than diabetes, that was higher than than heart disease, that was higher than uh, risks of accident and injury, the strongest association was between having an undiagnosed sleep disorder risk and depression and anxiety. Now, you'll say, well, of course, firefighters, police officers, first responders, 
um, are, you know, are, are often going to be stressed, and there may be other reasons uh, for, for depression, anxiety, and that's true. But we controlled for that by looking at those with and without a sleep disorder, uh, and everyone was was a police officer or a firefighter. So that's just one example of how not getting a sleep disorder treated or not sleeping enough uh, could increase your risk of those problems. And of course, you know, one night is not going to do it. If you have one bad night, that's not suddenly going to uh, cause these long-term health issues. But over years um, of poor habits, over years of having an undiagnosed disorder, this is going to increase your risk of depression, anxiety, and some of the other chronic disorders. With you know, I, with seasonal depression, is there is there anything you can do to train your body or train your clock when the seasons change? So one thing that has been useful and, and is used as a clinical therapy is to use light and to use light therapy to essentially kid the brain uh, into thinking it's still summer. And so uh, that's been known now since the 1980s that if you, for example, uh, sit in front of a light box in the morning uh, or get yourself into bright sunlight if it's available, uh, in the morning, that can be helpful in reducing the symptoms of winter depression. Now, there's a range of different types of lighting that, have, that has been studied, very bright white light or uh, more recently looking at blue light. And in fact, we published a study uh, over 10 years ago now showing that if you sat in front of a blue light box um, for 45 minutes in the morning, that reduced uh, the rate uh, of, of depression by about 80%. In people with winter depression other people have shown similar things for brighter white light um, and so it's pretty well established that light therapy is useful now while morning appears to be better than other times of day light at other times of day is also helpful and although blue light seems to be very effective uh, other wavelengths of light or white light is effective so it really is about getting that increased light exposure probably uh, easiest uh, in the morning uh, but by doing that, you tell the brain that the day is longer, the night is shorter, and hopefully uh, reduce the risk of depression. It's really caused by that lengthening of night in the winter. So if you can see light early in the morning, tell the brain that it's now daytime, then that seems to be quite an effective therapy if it's done regularly. It needs to be done every day. What, what about melatonin? Do, can you supplement melatonin? So melatonin uh, as a, a supplement isn't really um, uh, advised and isn't really based in, in any good science. And so the, the idea of a, of a phrase like melatonin supplement implies that you don't have enough of it. That's not true. Um, th there's no evidence really to, to talk about amount of melatonin being important for, for any health issues. So melatonin is a natural hormone, as I said earlier. It's produced by the pineal gland at night, and it tells the brain that it's nighttime. Uh, but it, it's not really the amount of melatonin that's doing that. It's more likely the duration of melatonin that is signaling to the brain that this is nighttime. And so we don't need melatonin to sleep necessarily. It's, it's not promoting sleep, it's, it's promoting night. And so you don't need to supplement your natural melatonin. You will have enough melatonin to do the job that the natural melatonin is supposed to do you're not lacking in, in melatonin like you might be lacking in, in some other supplement. And so you don't need to take it as a supplement. 
And it also doesn't work very well as a sleeping pill. As I mentioned earlier, natural melatonin is not necessarily uh, directly causing sleep. And so taking it as a sleeping pill isn't particularly effective. What melatonin can help you do if you take it is help you sleep at the wrong time. And what I mean by that is if you're a shift worker trying to sleep in the day or you've just traveled to another time zone and you have jet lag and you're trying to sleep at night in the new time zone, melatonin is then very good at uh, helping you sleep at the wrong time of your cycle, at the, the wrong circadian phase. And so for shift workers and for jet lag and for people who have circadian sleep disorders, then melatonin can be quite useful in, in helping people sleep. The other indication is for resetting the clock in people who don't have light perception. So I mentioned earlier that light is the primary time cue for resetting the clock. But then that begs the question, well, what happens if you don't have eyes or if you're totally blind mm -hmm. and you can't detect light? And so what happens then is most totally blind people will develop something called non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder where their clock runs on its own internal time. So uh, earlier I mentioned, let's say, the uh, uh, you know someone's clock could be 24.5 hours. Well, if a totally blind person has a clock of 24.5, their brain would tell them to go to sleep at, let's say, 10 o'clock tonight, 10.30 tomorrow, 11 the night after, 11.30, midnight, and so on. So that after 24 days, the brain would be telling them to go to sleep at 10 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 11 a.m., and going round and round the clock. So if you're totally blind, have, have no light perception, you're likely to have this disorder. And what melatonin can do is replace that signal that you've missed from, from the light. You can give the time cue back to the brain by taking melatonin every 24 hours. And so in some studies I did um, in the UK over 20 years ago now, we showed for the first time that if you gave melatonin at the same time every day, let's say 9 p.m., mm -hmm. that uh, the blind people's clocks could reset to that. Some of them, not everyone did, but, but over half did, and, and could replace that time cue. And more recently... Based on that work, uh, a company called Van der Pharmaceuticals have developed a melatonin agonist, which is a, a melatonin-like drug, uh, called Hetlios, and it's approved now by the FDA to treat non-24-hour sleep-wake disorder, including in blind people. And so you may have seen on TV adverts for uh, that drug called Hetlios, and, and we were involved in, in doing that study. And, and that works on the same principles as melatonin because it's a melatonin-like drug providing that time cue to reset the clocks of totally blind people. And we, we take for granted what light is doing for us every day in resetting our rhythms. Um, but if you don't have that light information, uh, your, your brain soon becomes desynchronized from the 24-hour world, and that becomes very debilitating uh, in terms of things like sleeping at the right time, getting to work on time, getting to school, keeping a job, having a social life. Um, it becomes really disruptive for many of these totally blind people. And so we could show that melatonin could reset the clock, and now um, a drug has been formally approved uh, to do that, which which is great for those patients. Mm -hmm. Using, you know, I guess myself, my experience, I want to know your suggestions. So, you know, I, I probably wasn't educated enough, but I had been taking melatonin very, like what you said, right around 9 o'clock, 
every evening for maybe a year now. Would would you suggest for me to stop doing that? Well, I, I don't think it's really doing very much for your sleep. And okay. so when people have studied melatonin uh, in people who are at a normal time, you know, they're sleeping normally, you're not a shift worker, you don't have jet lag, um, then melatonin doesn't really do a great deal uh, to help with sleep. What it might do over the longer term is a similar thing to how I just explained for the blind people, but uh, at a lower level. It might provide a time cue to help stabilize your clock if you take it exactly 24 hours uh, apart. What you don't want to do for a circadian application is take it at bedtime because your bedtime varies. And then you're giving a mixed signal to the clock. The clock is looking for a 24-hour time cue like the light-dark cycle. So if you were to take it at exactly the same time every night, you might then find your sleep pattern shifting slightly so that it occurs at a better circadian time, and that might help you fall asleep quicker or stay asleep a little bit longer. But that would be quite a long-term uh, change, and you would need to keep taking it every day because you know when you stop taking it, the system goes back to, to where it was. But whether that would make a difference over your phone use before bed or getting up early to exercise or having to stay up late at the weekend, uh, you know, those things would probably have a bigger negative impact than, than the melatonin would recover for. The other area that people study, though, around melatonin is some of its other properties. And so while it's not, uh, in my opinion, uh, entirely clear yet, there is some evidence that melatonin might have an anti-inflammatory effect or certainly an antioxidant effect. And so there might be other benefits to melatonin other than sleep and circadian rhythms. But that, that uh, area is still uh, under active research. Is there a certain dosage that you would recommend that's too much? Or, you know, I, I've heard, I think that once you get over, I don't know, three milligrams, it doesn't really change at all? So the dose of melatonin is quite an interesting question. And so it seems to be different based on the reason you're using melatonin. So if you give melatonin to try and make you more sleepy or to try and help you sleep in the daytime, then up to a certain level, the higher the dose, the, the better the effect. And so colleagues of mine uh, years ago studied the difference between uh, 0.05, 0.5, and 5 milligrams of melatonin. And the more melatonin uh, they took, the more sleepy they, they, they became. But if you're thinking about trying to reset the clock, the studies we did in the blind people show that, in fact, lower doses were at least as good and may even have been better than higher doses. And by that, I mean a 0.5 milligram dose uh, was at least as good as a 5 milligram dose. And that's because we think that in that case, the melatonin is trying to provide a discrete time cue rather than a, uh, a you know, sort of a hormone to help you maintain sleep. It's, it's trying to give, if you like, a gong signal uh, to the brain to reset it, to reset the rhythms. That's different than to taking melatonin to help you sleep where you want a, uh, you know, a longer period of, of time uh, with the melatonin circulating to keep telling the brain it's night time. Now, that was a complicated answer to quite a simple question. Um, so the answer is for most of uh, applications, um, higher doses are probably slightly better than lower doses, but not very much. If you're taking a one or a three milligram dose, 
then you're not going to get much more than that with a higher dose. Certainly, we shouldn't be taking 10 and 20 milligrams uh, of, of melatonin, which people sometimes do. If you take 300 milligrams, it's been shown to be a contraceptive. And so at very high levels, um, it's not recommended. And so, you know, something like one milligram, uh, you know, would, would be perfectly fine. Now, keep in mind, I'm not a physician. I can't give medical advice. Um, and really, if you're going to take melatonin to help address a sleep problem or a circadian problem, you really should do that with your physician because uh, there, there are uh, no long-term safety data available on melatonin. While we, we do think it's a relatively safe drug, it is a hormone. Uh, it is a natural hormone. Um, in, in other species, melatonin is intimately linked with reproductive cycles. Uh, and so I wouldn't, for example, recommend giving it to prepubertal children uh, because there's no data on what it does uh, in terms of reproductive development. Um, and it isn't really something you would want to be taking all the time. It's really when you have an unusual situation, sleeping in the daytime as a shift worker or traveling to a new time zone, that's when it's most effective, where you would take it just for a short while while you have that short-term problem. It's not really something that you need to be taking uh, chronically. Got it. That's really good. <clears throat> really good to know. With <clears throat> a big thing around sleep and sleep disruptiveness is diet and eating. Yep. Where where does that come into play with your clock and times a day you should be eating? Maybe amounts that you should be eating too. Does that talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So again, you know, think, um, you know, think what would you have done in, in the real world, you know, had there not been uh, electric light available, how would you have scheduled your, uh, your behavior? And so we've talked about sleep, you know, you would sleep at night and be awake in the day. And, and the same thought process applies to food. Um, you would have hunted and found food in the daytime and would have eaten in the daytime. You wouldn't really have been eating at night. And in fact, when you study the effects of eating at night compared to eating in the day, um, we do it. We, we metabolize food much worse at night. And so, again, colleagues of mine did experiments where they gave the same meal at 1.30 in the morning versus the same meal at 1.30 in the afternoon. And when you eat at 1.30 in the morning, even though it's exactly the same food, you have higher levels of glucose, higher levels of insulin, higher levels of fats in the blood. And these are long-term risk factors for things like diabetes and heart disease. And so we've not evolved to eat at night. And so a simple rule of thumb to think about eating is to eat when it's light outside. Um, and that is then eating with your circadian rhythm. And certainly uh, more and more uh, people are showing that if you eat when you are producing your own melatonin, that's not necessarily a good thing. And so that would be from around two to three hours before sleep. And so you really want to stop eating at least two to three hours before you would normally go to bed. Uh, but even earlier than that, if, um, uh, if it's dark out and, and so eat in the daytime because we're a day active animal and we've evolved to eat in the day. Now, shift workers have a problem with that because, of course, they're awake at night and asleep in the day. But even then, shift workers should try and have their biggest meals uh, in the daytime still. Uh, in the late afternoon for lunch or maybe in the early evening for dinner, you shouldn't be eating large quantities of food at night. And if you're thinking about the content of food, then, of course, 
uh, high fat and high carbohydrate food is also probably not advisable in the middle of the night. Uh, junk food, high food, high in sugars, uh, and so on and so forth is, is not a good idea either. And so if you're a shift worker, still try and have as much of your, your calories in the daytime uh, or early evening, uh, not uh, in the middle of the night. If you're not a shift worker, eat in the day. Now, there is lots of talk about restricted feeding um, uh, and restricted fasting and, and these other methods uh, for helping with diet and so on. But it's really just applying circadian principles uh, to that. Uh, most of those restricted feeding regimes talk about you know, eating in the daytime. And that's just eating at the right circadian time. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly magic about the restriction. It's really about the timing of, of when we eat and we've evolved to eat in the day. And so that's, that's what we should do as much as possible. With, you know, with human performance and, and especially the people I work with and probably a lot of my audience, we, you know, are pretty active individuals, but also, you know, working out too close to bedtime or sleep can also disrupt your sleep. Where does exercise come into play? And also on the flip side, I know, I think the old school of thinking is you get up and you work out really hard. Um, but then sometimes maybe the core temperature or the body isn't ready for that. So talk about yeah. exercise and sleep and, and the and the internal clock. Yeah. So we, we think about sleep, diet, and exercise uh, as the three pillars of health. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's a good starting point. But really the focus has been until now uh, really on diet and exercise. Sleep hasn't got much of a look in. And in fact, um, if, if you think about the priority that you give to sleep over the others, uh, sleep is probably the bottom of the list. You know, that, that's the thing we sacrifice when we want to work out. That's the thing we sacrifice if we want to, to have a social life. Um, we, we don't prioritize sleep over diet and exercise. And we probably should, because any time that people look at the relationship between sleep and health, the relationships are very strong indeed. And, and we know that people who don't sleep enough, even if they're not shift workers, have an increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, stroke, hypertension, uh, depression, anxiety, certain cancers. Um, and it makes sense. Sleep is so important to, to our brain function. Um, that we need to have optimal amounts each and every day. You don't have to have optimal amounts of food every day. You don't have to have optimal amounts of exercise every day. Uh, but sleep is something you need to keep doing on a daily basis. So first of all, we should prioritize sleep over other aspects of our health, and we don't do that as a society. Then if we think about exercise, uh, and circadian rhythms, then we, we do do things which are probably not really advisable. If you uh, think of the rhythm of, of body temperature that you mentioned, core body temperature hits its lowest at around four, five, six in the morning, depending on whether you're a morning or an evening type. And so if you get up and exercise heavily uh, very soon after waking, then you're exercising at a time when your core temperature is low, your muscle temperature is low, and therefore, you're likely, I think, to have more problems with, with performance or with injury. The other thing to keep in mind is that heart, heart attacks peak in the morning. And that's likely to be related in part to the circadian rhythm in heart function. And so we haven't really evolved to be working out super, uh, super hard in the morning. That peak heart attack time is 9 a.m. Now, 
The longer you go through the day, though, of course, the more tired you become because of that homeostatic system I mentioned earlier. The, the longer you're awake, the more fatigued you are. And so you also shouldn't really be working out at the end of the day because you're tired. And for the reasons you just said, uh, exercise is a stimulant. And so you'll find it then harder to fall asleep and have less better sleep. You'll have worse, not better sleep quality. And so ideally, you need to find that balance between not you know not exercising too early, not exercising too late. Um, you need to be just right. Uh, and that would really be you know more towards the, the mid to late afternoon when your temperature is peaking. But of course, that's hard for people to do with their, with their lives because you're at work then, you're at school then. Um, and so then you've got to find that compromise uh, with the timing relative to things like sleep um, uh, and what time you need to get up. But you know, just thinking about that and, and being aware of that is a start uh, and thinking about, well, you know, what was my, what was my sleep last night? How alert am I? Um, have I kept a stable schedule? Um, you know, am I really having my clock at this uh, stable time that I can um, exercise at the same time every day or do I need to shift it as my sleep shifts? I've just got back from a trip overseas. I'm jet lagged, so I shouldn't really be exercising at that same time. You need to think a little bit about how to plan uh, that and, and try and put it, you know, into the middle of the day, uh, not first thing in the day, not last thing at night. Um, and sometimes decide to sleep instead of exercise because the sleep is probably doing you more good. That's, that's so true. Is there, is there a rule of thumb for sleep before or exercise before sleep, two hours, three hours, five hours? So when we, we do education on sleep, I, I will often say try not to exercise within six hours of sleep, which obviously is, is quite, you know, quite a late time. So that would mean you know not exercising after about five or six p.m. if you're going to bed at uh, 10, 11, 12. Obviously, that's difficult. Um, and so, with anything, again, it has to has to be practical. But just like I said, with the light, exercising as far away from sleep as possible is good. Seeing dim light for as long as possible before sleep is good. If you can only do thirty minutes with light, do thirty minutes. If you can only do two hours with exercise, do two hours. But try and do three, try and do four, try and make that gap as big as possible between exercise and sleep. With, I know with some of your work, you've been working with some professional teams. Has how has this how has sleep been received in you know professional sports? It, it, it's been perceived better uh, with time, and, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, people have had decades now thinking about diet and exercise and so you know professional athletes know a huge amount about that know about their diet know what to do um, do as they're told in the main hopefully um, uh, and then as well as their their exercise they're on top of that for the time being sleep has sort of happened by accident those athletes who have learned about the importance of sleep are gaining an edge and so if you, you talk to some of the top athletes, certainly some of the, the top Formula One drivers I've worked with, they know that sleep is absolutely key and really prioritize sleep because they've got to be super alert uh, and not fatigued when, when driving, uh, obviously, Formula One cars. And so they get it and they prioritize it and they plan around that. And uh, you know, there, are, there are other uh, athletes I've worked with, some uh, uh, 
uh, with, with some NBA teams and NFL teams again who think about that and prioritize it. What the problem is, though, is that sometimes there's this old school attitude that, well, you know, we never used to do it this way. We used to just power through and we were great. Um, or you can sleep when you're dead. I'm wasting time if I'm sleeping. Mm-hmm. But these sort of old school macho attitudes, um, which are hanging on uh, and, and will take some more years to get rid of. Um, but you often have to fight against some of that uh, th- that attitude, which is just completely wrong. Um, but uh, it's often hard to shake from people who have always done it that, that way. And so I think as younger generation of coaches and athletes uh, understand the importance of sleep and experience it for themselves, we'll have a better attitude around sleep in, in the athletic community, in professional sports, and you know have more and more people take that on as a priority, um, as opposed to now a, a few who get it uh, and they get the advantage from it. One of the sort of one of the phrases I use when giving talks to, to teams is that uh, sometimes it's hard to tell brilliant people that they could be more brilliant. <laughs> and, and, and this is part of the problem. If someone is successful without having much sleep, they think it's because they didn't sleep very much. But it's not. It's despite the fact that they didn't sleep enough. And if they slept more, they would be even better. But if you've just won the Super Bowl, you know, uh, nothing I tell you uh, about improving your performance is, is going to be taken seriously. So um, that that's part of the problem. Whereas those advanced athletes who really want to squeeze every drop um, of, of ability out of themselves and want to do everything to, to make them as good as they can be, sleep is a key part of that and an essential part of that structure. Just like nutrition, just like exercise, just like hydration, just like all of those things. Yeah. But sleep has to be front and center. And if you don't do that, you're just missing out uh, and you're just not as good as you could be. But then, of course, again, we've got this attitude in all society. Well, if you lie in bed and sleep and you're somehow lazy or you're missing the best part of the day, uh, you're somehow morally superior if you get up at five o'clock and exercise. You know, that's nonsense. Um, people's clocks are set differently. Uh, and we have this prejudice against the evening types uh, that somehow it's better to be up early. And it's just there's no basis for that at all. Um, so why not do something that could affect and help everyone by having team uh, practice a little later rather than in young people whose clocks are set later or penalizing delayed people? Why are we doing something to purposely make them worse? Uh, let's make the situation as optimal as we can for everyone. Yeah, it's really an outdated way of thinking. Um, is there a certain amount of sleep you recommend? I know we're all individuals and we're all different. Um, but what, what do you recommend for, you know, the time of sleep? Yeah. So the, the recommended, uh, sleep duration for adults is seven to nine hours and a night, um, and seven being the minimum, you know, that shouldn't be the target. Uh, seven should be the minimum requirement. And if you want to sleep for seven hours, you've got to be in bed for longer than seven hours because, of course, you don't sleep the whole time you're in bed. And so, you know, we're aiming for at least eight to maybe nine hours in bed uh, to try and get enough sleep every night. And if we were thinking about younger athletes, because younger people need a bit more sleep, certainly if we're talking about teenagers or or people in their early 20s, maybe they want to be getting, uh, you know, eight and a half to nine hours of sleep or even more sometimes. So they need to be in bed for, for nine hours a night at least. So if I'm planning, a, you know, a schedule for a team with a mix of, of younger and older people, then, you know, it's nine hours of protected time for sleep that goes into the schedule. Um, 
And so that's the sort of thinking, at least seven hours of actual sleep, so in bed for at least eight or, or nine hours. And the time in, in, in some ways doesn't really matter as long as it's stable because the circadian system will reset itself to the time that you choose to sleep. Because, of course, when you sleep, you're also avoiding light. You're also seeing dark. And so by going to sleep and waking at the same time every night, you're finding a light-dark cycle to the brain automatically. And so if you choose your sleep time, let's say you choose to go to bed at 11 and wake up at 8, try and do that as much as possible each and every day in the same way. And then eventually the clock will reset itself and you'll find that that time will be your, your, become your best time to sleep. Someone who wants to go to bed at nine and wake up at six, that's fine. They can do that and the clock will shift to that. So it's about really keeping a stable and regular sleep, wake and light dark cycle. And, uh, and then your, your brain will, will reset itself to that as long as you keep doing that as much as you can every day. So I was speaking with a buddy of mine and I told him we were going to be talking today and he was he was telling me how he's struggling with tiredness and and really feeling groggy with you know he's thinking he needs to have eight and a half nine hours of sleep but he asked me if there was a way to train your body to be more productive on seven hours of sleep is that possible or is it kind of just in your genetics it's not possible. Just like you can't train yourself to do with, with less water. Um, there's a certain physiological need um, that the brain and body has, and, and sleep is exactly the same in that way. The importance of sleep is, is really paramount, and we're learning more and more about what it does. And, and sleep, it, it seems now, it, one of its major roles is to clean out the brain. And so during the day, you you know you take in a lot of information you do a lot of things your brain is very active and you build up uh, waste you know in, in the brain because of those cellular processes so what sleep seems to do is is come and clean the brain out every night allowing you then to start afresh the next day and and reduce you know um uh, build up of, of damage in the brain build up of, of things that might damage your function and so we used to think that you know, sleep was involved just for things like energy conservation. And then people thought, well, it's about memory and learning, which it is. Sleep is required for learning. But now people are finding that it's really important for cleaning out the brain and keeping the brain healthy. And so you wouldn't want to do without sleep. You don't want to do that. Just in the way that you, uh, if you're an athlete, you want to keep exercising and you want to take the right nutrition. You want more sleep. It's good for you. It's doing you, uh, you know, a, a lot of good. And so let's get rid of this question, how much sleep can I get away with? Which is the sort of question your, your friend uh, is asking. Um, you know, uh, th th it doesn't exist. Just like you can't train yourself to live on less water, there's a certain amount of sleep and, and water that you need to survive and be optimal. Now, um, he might not need eight and a half hours a night. There is a range. So we talk about seven to nine hours. You know, that would cover the majority of people. It's rare that people can do their best on less than that. All these people that you hear say, well, I only sleep four hours a night and I'm, I'm great. They're not. They're delusional. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not. Um, interestingly, if you're sleep deprived, your ability to judge yourself is, is about the same as being drunk. <laughs> so a sleep deprived brain 
you know, is no better than a drunk brain at self-assessment. So if, if someone tells you they're doing brilliantly on four hours a night, it's nonsense. Um, they don't exist. And, and in fact, when uh, people say I'm a short sleeper and then uh, colleagues of mine bring them into the lab, they're not. Uh, you know, they're not biologically short sleepers. Uh, they just choose to sleep a short amount of time and, and do themselves at home. So none of this four hours a night and, and somehow you're better. But he might not need eight and a half. The way to tell is whether you could fall asleep in the daytime and how quickly you could do that. So there's something called a multiple sleep latency test, which clinicians use. Uh, but you can do this yourself at home for fun. And what they do is ask you to lie down and try and sleep for 20 minutes at a time, five times over the, over the day. And they measure how long it takes you to fall asleep within that 20 minutes. If you are getting enough sleep at night, you shouldn't really be able to fall asleep within 20 minutes, probably not within 15. So if you would lie awake in a nice, quiet, dark, comfortable room in the daytime and you couldn't fall asleep within about 15 to 20 minutes, then you, you're getting enough sleep to keep you uh, alert. If you fall asleep after about 10 minutes, you're, you're at the average, um, but that means that you're, you're a little sleep deprived. If you would fall asleep within five to 10 minutes, that's the same as someone who is, is starting to become sleep deprived and uh, some types of sleep disorder. If you can fall asleep within five minutes, that's a pathological level of sleepiness, and that would be concerning. That's the same as someone who's been awake for 24 hours straight. Uh, we'd be concerned of you having fall asleep car crashes. Uh, certainly, you're not performing well. So if you can, you could either do it yourself. You could you could try and work out how long it would take to fall asleep or think to yourself, well, if I just go and lie in bed now and it's comfortable and quiet and cool, if I fall asleep within five or within 10 minutes, I'm not getting enough sleep. And you need to then do something about that. And it might just be lifestyle, mm -hmm. caffeine, cut out the alcohol, exercise a little earlier, better light in the day, all those good sleep hygiene practices. Um, but it might also be clinical. You might have a sleep disorder. And so if you do all those right things and it doesn't get better, then go and see your physician. That was my next question. So if you... You know, you're leaning towards thinking you might have a sleep disorder. You would just go to your normal physician? I think so. I mean, if you know, you probably need a referral to go and see a sleep specialist. If you can go and see a sleep specialist straight away, uh, you know, if your system allows that, that would be fine. There are many American Academy of Sleep Medicine certified clinics, thousands in the U.S. And so, you know, look up your nearest AASM clinic uh, and try and see them. Uh, but if you need a referral to go and see them, then, you know, obviously do that through your primary care. Um, sleep complaints are one of the most things a primary care physician will hear about. Uh, and accordingly, sleeping medications are very highly prescribed. Mm -hmm. But they really shouldn't be um, for more than a temporary uh, concern. And so sleeping medications are really only something to be used for a few weeks to get over a temporary like for, for a bereavement, for example they're not supposed to be long-term chronic uh, chronic medications. And so if your primary care physician, you know, listens to you but then simply uh, gives you sleeping pills when it's not a short-term problem, then you do really want to see a sleep specialist um, and, and try and see someone in a sleep clinic. And that's, I mean, that's really good to know. And I mean, I think sleep medicine is way over-prescribed 
what what are some of the main health problems that can occur with not getting proper sleep? Maybe short term well, and really, long term. Yeah, everything goes wrong. I mean, and, and you know, again, think to think about your own experiences. If you go two, three, four days without good sleep, um, or you, you're polite, uh, or you've had a really busy time at work and haven't slept much, you know how bad you feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know quite quickly you're downhill with poor sleep. And, and what happens? Well, you feel tired, you're sleepy. So that means your short-term risks of things like accidents and injuries go up. Um, your risk of a drowsy driving crash goes up. It's very, very common. Probably uh, there are more drowsy driving crashes than drink and drugs combined because people fall asleep at the wheel. Often the police don't designate it as that because they give it another designation. But sleepy driving is is a big concern. So you know you feel bad. You know you know you feel achy. You feel like you get in a cold. You know you're a bit foggy. You can't concentrate. You already know some of those symptoms if you don't sleep very well. So, you know, it happens quite quickly. But if you spend then weeks and months and years not getting enough sleep, we know that this leads to a high risk of all chronic diseases. And so that means heart disease, hypertension, stroke. That means uh, diabetes. Uh, that means certain cancers have been associated with short sleep. Certainly uh, has a strong relationship with depression and anxiety and mental health issues. Um, and so... Everything is affected by sleep. And again, it makes sense because sleep is so important for brain recovery. And if the brain goes wrong, everything goes wrong. And so it's absolutely vital for our our long-term health that we sleep enough each and every night. Um, But then short-term, it affects our safety because of that risk of accidents, injuries, drowsy driving, crashes, and so on. And it's not like, you you know, we all live in a perfect world and every night you're going to get nine hours of sleep and you don't get woken up or, or you're not disturbed or something happens. It's not that you're necessarily going to be able to do it every night, but if you're going to become sleep deprived or are sleep deprived, plan how to recover. So if you know you've got uh, you know, a big weekend in terms of work and you're going to work long hours, try and get a little bit more sleep beforehand and then have a plan to recover. Go to bed properly. Don't just you know, have a nap uh, on the sofa. Really go to bed and, and sleep as long as you can to recover. If you're a night shift worker, have a nap before you go back to night work because that nap will help you stay alert through the night shift. Um, you know, if, if you know you're not sleeping enough, prioritize sleep and think about some of the things we've talked about, a regular schedule, your sleeping environment, stopping caffeine and certainly you know, at least stopping caffeine after lunch, light control and dim light in the evening. Uh, do some of these things things and prioritize sleep and see if that makes a difference and i think for most people they'll find it will exactly and dr lockley this has been amazing and so informative and to kind of close it for you when you're speaking with people what is really the biggest or most important takeaway you want people to understand about sleep and the importance of sleep I think it's the need to prioritize sleep. We were a little bit behind um, the exercise and the nutrition lobby in promoting good sleep and proving that sleep is important. And so I'm not sure people still believe uh, when people like me say, you know, sleep is important and it's necessary for good health. 
Um, so, you know, I think that's really the message. Prioritize sleep. Really think proactively about your sleep, just like you think about your exercise, you think about your diet. Think about sleep and, and put it higher on the list. And I think if you do that, a lot of other things will, will come along with it. Your exercise will be better because you've slept better. Your metabolism will be better because you've slept better, which means your nutrition will have a bigger impact uh, than it currently has. These things all interact. But if you get the sleep right, many of the other things will follow it because it's so fundamental. So prioritize sleep, get the sleep right, um, and then you, know, you will find a difference in your health, your performance, your alertness. Uh, it will make a big difference. Amazing. Well, Dr. Lockley, thank you again. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, I know a lot of people will get a lot from it. And uh, yeah, people need to prioritize their sleep. Simple as that. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.